you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Emmanuel Baptist Church in San Francisco seemed to be cursed. One former preacher, Isaac Callock, walked into the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle in 1880 and shot and killed its publisher, Charles DeYoung. Another former preacher, Charles Hughes, had committed suicide in Oakland. In 1890, it was decided that the church needed a new building. A site on Bartlett Street was selected, and the new church was built, in part, on a site previously occupied by a house believed to be haunted. The church had gone through quite a few preachers in its time, and the building was chronically in debt, as the construction had been far more expensive than initially thought. And just before Easter, in April of 1895, the seeming curse took on a new and grimmer form. This is episode 81, and this is the tale of the Demon of the Belfry. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. In December of 1917, the British politician and publisher of the magazine The Imperialist, Noel Pemberton Billing, began to publish a conspiracy theory about German homosexuals infiltrating the British populace and engaging in a blackmail campaign targeting British homosexuals. Over 47,000 people were supposed to be being blackmailed in this manner. It was an article in the same publication, renamed by that point, that alleged that dancer Maud Allen was an agent of the Germans and that she, as well as Margot Asquith, the wife of a former prime minister, were engaged in a lesbian affair and launching what was, in essence, a female-centered version of the previously described blackmail plot. The resulting lawsuits, in one regard, needed to be approached at least somewhat carefully since Maud Allen actually was a lesbian. So not only was that aspect not really liable, but she needed to be careful since homosexuality was still illegal in Britain at this point. The trial played out to be as much an attack on her morals as well as a defense by billing of the conspiracies that he proposed. The reason this lawsuit is brought up is that in the prosecution of the case, Billing disclosed that her surname was not actually Allen. Wasn't it true, he asked, that her brother was called the Demon of the Belfry? and had been hanged for the murders of two girls in 1895? And lest anyone think she wasn't some sort of degenerate pervert, he reasoned, if her brother was a murderer, who's to say what she got up to? And though the judge tried to rule that this evidence was completely irrelevant, Maud was forced to admit that yes, it was true. That murderer was her brother. Blanche Lamont had been born in Illinois in 1873, though she lived most of her life in Dillon in southwestern Montana. On the cryptozoological front, Dillon isn't too far from Ennis, which is where the famous mounted specimen of the so-called Shunkawarkeen had been shot. Blanche was one of two daughters of David Lamont, a banker, and his wife Julia. She also had two brothers besides. Her sister, Maud, later became postmistress of Dillon. A clever and talented girl, Blanche left Dillon to attend a teacher's school back in Illinois in the early 1890s. When she completed her studies there, she returned to Montana and became a teacher at the schoolhouse in Hecla, a small mining town on Lion Mountain. Hecla is now a ghost town. In September of 1894, 
Blanche moved in with an aunt, a Mrs. Noble, in San Francisco. Looking to further her teaching career, she decided to take some classes at the state-run normal school on Powell Street. She attended the Emanuel Baptist Church on Bartlett Street, where she played violin in the church orchestra. A few months later, on April 3, 1895, Blanche attended some classes at the school as, no as usual. A German woman named Mary Vogel, who lived across the street from the school, said that a man had been loitering around outside the school for an hour or so before class was dismissed. When Blanche left school for the day, she boarded a streetcar out front. Minnie Bell Edwards, another student at the normal school, said that she met and sat with a young man on the streetcar, and the two appeared to be close. After she boarded the streetcar, Blanche Lamont disappeared. On April 5th, Mrs. Noble received a small parcel bearing the address of George King, who was the choir director and organist at Emanuel Baptist. Opening the parcel, she found a few rings that had been worn by Blanche the day she disappeared. The next day, she notified the police about her niece's disappearance. While they were investigating, the police interviewed a young man named Theo Durant. He had been identified as someone who Blanche spent a good deal of time with. He confirmed to the police that he had, indeed, met with Blanche Lamont on the afternoon of April 3rd at the corner of Mission and 27th Streets. They had taken a brief walk. He said there was a novel that he had been reading which Blanche was interested in borrowing, but that she never showed up at his house that evening to retrieve it. The next morning, he had taken it to her aunt's house to give it to her, but she wasn't there then either. He didn't know what had happened. After an initial flurry of activity, the disappearance of Blanche Lamont went cold. Due to the lack of progress, the disappearance of the 22-year-old woman had left the papers when a week and a half later, interest was revived. Minnie Williams was 21. She had been born in Beamsville, Ontario, just west of Niagara Falls, the eldest of five children born to Albert Williams and his wife Marion. In 1892, her mother and father had divorced. Supposedly, Minnie had become aware that her father was spending quite a bit of time with another neighborhood woman, and when she told her mother this, Marion confronted her husband and he confessed to having an affair. Regardless of the circumstances, Marion and the four younger children returned to Canada, with Minnie staying with her father in the Bay Area. At some point, the father also left the picture. It's unclear why. Perhaps Minnie just didn't want to stay with her father and his new lady friend. She took a number of odd jobs, working in a factory for a time, and later becoming employed at a series of different homes as a domestic servant. The last of these was C.H. Morgan of Alameda, at whose home she helped care for his mother. In 1895, the Morgans began talking about moving to Oregon, however, and rather than accompany them when they left on Good Friday, April 12th, Minnie sent a trunk of things to the home of a friend of hers in San Francisco, Amelia Voy at whose home she was going to stay until she got another job. Around three in the afternoon, Minnie went into Alameda to go shopping in preparation for a church function she was to attend that evening. Around five o'clock, she was seen at the ferry landing in San Francisco conversing with a young man. She later got to Amelia Voy's house, but soon left again. Not accompanying the Morgans to Oregon was to be a bad decision for she never arrived at the gathering of the local Christian Endeavor Society held at the home of a dentist named Dr. Thomas Vogel. The next day, several young women went to the Emanuel Baptist Church to start decorating for Easter services the next day. At about 9.30 a.m., a Mrs. Nolt, accompanied by two younger women, Miriam Lord and Catherine Stevens, arrived there and went into the library of the church to get some things. They opened the door to a small storage room connected to the library. Here I should interject. Many sources call it a closet, and I suppose that by definition it is. But having seen photos of the room, it was quite a bit larger than what we would usually think of as a closet. It was really just a small room with a few bookcases and a few chairs. Some other sources call it a reading room. Anyway, when they opened the door to this room they discovered the bloodied remains of Minnie Williams. When the coroner arrived and inspected the body, he found that Minnie had been strangled, apparently manually, 
and the two pieces of cloth torn from her dress had been used to gag her. One was shoved into her mouth, but another was shoved down her throat. She had been raped, both before and after death, and finally stabbed repeatedly, with such ferocity that the knife, an ordinary kitchen knife, had splintered into three pieces. All three pieces were left at the scene. While the coroner carted off the body for a more thorough examination, the police, led by Chief Patrick Crowley, began to investigate. Questioning Mr. Morgan, they found that Minnie was a member of the church in which her body had been found. As soon as they heard this, their ears perked up. Hadn't Blanche Lamont been a member at Emmanuel Baptist as well? The coincidences were to pile up when they found out that Minnie had been seeing a young man from the church for a time. Morgan said that he thought he remembered that the young man had made her, quote, an improper proposal, and that thereafter, she seemingly had little to do with him. He also said that the same young man appeared at the house a few days before, and had asked Minnie to come to San Francisco, as he had something important to tell her, and Minnie had said, either tell her right then and there, or else wait until the Christian Endeavor Society meeting. They were to later find out, through talking to two medical students named Charles A. Dukes and Clarence Y. Dodge, as well as a man named Adolph Hobe and Frank Sademan, the church's janitor, that the same young man had been the one seen at the ferry landing speaking to Minnie. The young man was Theo Durant, the same young man last seen with Blanche Lamont. But Durant could not at first be located. Detective Edward Gibson began searching the church on the hunch that some clue to the first girl's disappearance might be found there. But they combed the entire church and found nothing. The entire church, except one door found locked. The door to the church's belfry. A door which Frank Sademan and the detective couldn't get open, as the lock had been tampered with and the doorknobs missing. The next day, Detective Gibson returned to the church with Officer A.B. Reel at about 9 a.m., and with a third man's assistance, they managed to get the door open. They ascended the rickety wooden stairs to the belfry, noting bloodstains on the steps. When they arrived in the tower, they discovered the completely nude body of Blanche Lamont. The body was laid out as if prepared for burial, with the arms crossed over the chest. Blanche's body had bled slightly from the mouth, and had apparently been manually strangled, as was Minnie Williams. Like her, Blanche had also been raped. Two pieces of wood were placed on either side of the corpse's head, apparently to hold it in place, and a few more under the body. Aside from a single glove lying on the floor nearby, and several buttons lying scattered on the floor, none of her clothing was to be seen. Gibson and Reel noted footprints and drag marks in the dust on the stairs and landing, which combined with the bloodstains on the stairs, seemed to indicate that Blanche had been killed elsewhere and her body dragged up the stairs to the belfry. Soon, a number of police, as well as some residents of the neighborhood, began a search of the belfry for any additional clues. Officer T.J. Coleman found the doorknobs stashed underneath some boards just inside the doorway to the stairs. Other policemen found some stockings and underwear underneath the floorboards, and Blanche's school books and shoes underneath boards nearby. A man aiding in the search named Star Dare noticed something sticking out over the edge of one of the rafters above. He clambered up and found Blanche's corset weighed down with a piece of wood. Nearby, he discovered a hatchet lying on another rafter, although it was not bloody. It was thought to have been used to render the door to the belfry unopenable. The rafters proved to be the main hiding place, as further up he located a waistcoat, a skirt, and some other garments. He noted that the waistcoat and skirt were torn. It was said that the items were concealed as much as 30 feet above the landing on which the body lay, and J.J. McGreevy, another man who lived up the street, found Blanche's hat underneath some other floorboards. Shortly after the discovery of Blanche Lamont's body hit the national press, the police were contacted by their counterparts in Boston, Massachusetts. They notified them of a notable coincidence. Two decades before, there had likewise been a murder in a Baptist church, and that body likewise, was found in the belfry. This was the killing of Mabel Young at the Warren Avenue Baptist Church on May 23, 1875, a building that was, coincidentally, almost identical in appearance to Emmanuel Baptist. Mabel Young was only four years old 
and was still alive when first discovered. The murder itself was different in both the age of the girl and the fact that she had been bludgeoned with a cricket bat. But also like the San Francisco case, it had been committed by a church employee, in this case one named Thomas Piper, who was found guilty and executed. Piper also confessed during his trial that in 1873 he had murdered a girl named Bridget Landrigan in Dorchester, and that he had also attempted to kill another girl named Mary Tynan. The church is no longer there, but stood at what is now Hayes Park in Boston. Coincidentally, a bronze statue of a child can be found in the park. It seems the sculptor was unaware of what had taken place there years before, its placement yet another odd coincidence. As said earlier, Theo Durant was missing. It was known that he had at least told people that he was going to be out with a signal corps at Mount Diablo. In all police departments in the area, some sources say throughout the state, though I find that a bit dubious, were notified. Within a few days, Theo Durant was located in Walnut Creek, about where he said he'd be. He was swiftly arrested. Like many Williams, William Henry Theodore Durant, usually called Theo, was Canadian, having been born in Toronto to William and Isabella Durant. He had a sister, Maud, at the time of the murders at a music school in Berlin. This sister went on to become Maud Allen. The family moved to San Francisco when Theo was about nine. Theo was an athletic young man, popular and intelligent. He was enrolled at the Cooper Medical College in San Francisco. He was also librarian at Emmanuel Baptist, as well as a Sunday school teacher, and was a member of the National Guard and the Signal Corps. So with Theo now in custody, we'll rewind a few days to the beginnings of the investigations into the two killings. The newspapers loved to point out how the two girls were the opposite of each other physically. Blanche Lamont was a tall, well-built country girl, and Minnie Williams was a short, 90-pound city girl. With a probable killer now in custody, police began interviewing witnesses to the two deaths and attempting to build a timeline leading up to their deaths. First, the Blanche Lamont case. Streetcar conductor Henry Jacob Shelmont said that both she and Theo Durant had boarded his car at Mission and Ninth Streets at 8.42 a.m. and traveled north, leaving the car at Sutter and Polk Street about 10 minutes later. This route was confirmed by Herman Schlageter, another Cooper Medical College student who was riding on the same car. A reporter with the San Francisco Evening Post named S.W. Horton said that he had spoken to Theo in prison and that he had claimed, at least, that after disembarking at Sutter and Polk, he boarded another car headed west and she boarded one headed east. This would seem to imply that he was going to the medical school and she to the normal school. But as the testimony as to that comes from the accused, well... Who knows if that's actually correct. Here there's a bit of a blank spot in the timeline. The next sighting that could be determined was when Mary Vogel saw Theo le loitering around the normal school at about 2 p.m. About 2.55, Minnie Bell Edwards said, she and Blanche left the normal school together and walked toward the intersection of Powell and Clay Streets. Here they met a young man she later identified as Theo Durant, and he and Blanche boarded a streetcar. Two blocks south of here, May Lanigan and Alice Dorgan saw the two on board the streetcar as it paused at the California Street crossing at approximately 3.10. The car then turned east. Then, then there is another blank spot, with Elizabeth Croset, with Elizabeth Croset testifying that she saw the two disembarking a streetcar at either 21st or 22nd and Valencia Street about 4 p.m. Then a lawyer named Martin Quinlan on his way to meet a friend at a bar, saw the two near the southeast corner of 22nd and Bartlett Streets, only about a half a block north of Emmanuel Baptist. This was at about 4.10 or 4.15. Caroline Leake of 124 Bartlett Street, directly across the street from the church, said that around the same time she saw the two walking in front of Emmanuel Baptist and heading to a gate around the south side. Mrs. Leake said that she couldn't definitively identify the woman, as she couldn't see her clearly. She thought it was probably either Blanche Lamont or Lillian Turner, since she could clearly see the young man and could tell that this was definitely Theo Durant. 
Lillian Turner was another young woman in the church that Theo had been spending time with. He apparently had a bit of a reputation as a ladies' man. George King, the 16-year-old organist and general handyman at the church, said that he had a lengthy encounter with Theo Durant when he arrived at the church later on the afternoon of April 3rd. King only had a key to the front doors, however. He said that he smelt gas as soon as he entered, and immediately went to check on a gas valve he had installed in the library a few days before. Finding no leak, he went into the classroom to a practice piano. Then, as he testified at Durant's trial, Mr. Durant came through the folding doors in the rear, as if he had come from that direction, and stood there a moment and looked at me. He stood in the space a moment and then passed through. I asked him what was the matter because of his pale condition. He had his coat off and his hat off and his hair was somewhat disheveled. He came through and then he told me that he had been fixing the gas above the auditorium upstairs and had been overcome by it to such a degree that he could scarcely descend the ladder. He seemed ill. He handed me a 50 cent piece and asked me to go out and get some bromo seltzer. I passed out to get the bromo seltzer through the front door. I went down Bartlett to 22nd and from 22nd to Valencia. The drugstore is on the west side of Valencia and one door away from the corner. I purchased the seltzer there. Then I returned to the church by the same route. When he returned with the medicine, he gave it to Durant, who was lying down in the room where he had left him. Durant and King went into the kitchen of the church, where King said Durant, quote, took a dose of the medicine. I asked him why he did not get me to help him fix the gas, and he said he had started from my house early in the morning, but he met Miss Blanche Lamont on the way. Then we went upstairs into the choir loft and carried down a small organ that was in there. Mr. Durant appeared weak, and he had to stop two or three times to rest. After the two finished moving the organ, they walked to King's home, where Durant moved on. This was at shortly before six in the evening. Theo's mother confirmed that he returned home shortly after 6 o'clock that evening to his home at 1025 Fair Oaks Street. He looked ill, she said, and he barely ate anything for dinner. The distance from the corner of 22nd and Cap Streets, where Theo had left George King, to Fair Oaks Street is nearly a half mile. As the average person walks somewhere between 3 and 4 miles per hour, if he walked this distance in what is likely approximately 5 minutes, he was walking pretty darn fast. Finally, a Mission District pawnbroker by the name of Adolf Oppenheim said that on April 4th, a man he later identified as Theo Durant attempted to pawn a diamond ring. Oppenheim didn't think that the ring was very valuable and declined to buy it. He said that when he saw a photograph of the rings mailed to Mrs. Noble accompanying a story in the newspaper, he identified one as the ring which Durant had attempted to pawn. The identification of Durant as the man in Oppenheim's shop was also confirmed by a man named William Phillips. Some sources refer to Blanche as Durant's fiance. It seems that, according to her aunt, at some point Theo had proposed to her. The aunt judged from Blanche's tone that she gave him a rather sarcastic sort of, yeah, okay, type answer. It doesn't seem that the engagement was really a legitimate thing, but... Whether Durant might have believed it to be more of a valid thing than it actually was, who can say? After he was notified of Blanche's disappearance by a churchgoer named Dr. Thomas Vogel on April 7th, Dr. Vogel mentioned the disappearance in passing, and Theo claimed to know nothing of it, claiming to have last seen her the morning of April 3rd, contradicted by the several witnesses who saw Durant, in Lamont that afternoon, and by Durant's own initial statements to the police. But after he was notified of this, Theo seems to have taken it upon himself to investigate the disappearance, which in itself could seem a bit fishy. Dr. Vogel was not a relative of Mary Vogel, who saw Durant hanging around Blanche Lamont's school. Harry Partridge, a classmate of Theo's at the medical school, said that he spoke to him sometime after the disappearance. He didn't say anything as to the exact day. Durant said that he believed, quote, Blanche Lamont had either met with foul play or was enticed into a house of ill fame. The janitor of Emmanuel Baptist, Frank Sademan, 
said that at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon on April 13th, he saw Theo Durant waiting at the ferry landing at the foot of Market Street. Two classmates of his had seen him at the same place an hour before. Sademan said he spoke to Durant and that he had told him that he was at the ferry landing following up on a story that he had heard that Blanche Lamont was on one of the ferry boats. Another man, named Adolph Hobe, said that an hour after this, Durant was still there and now was speaking with a young woman. This is a pretty convenient transition to the timeline constructed around the murder of Minnie Williams, for this is who Durant was speaking with. When she arrived at Amelia Voy's shortly after her meeting with Durant at the ferry landing, she ate dinner and then left again for a church event to be held at the home of Dr. Thomas Vogel, the same mentioned a bit ago as a witness in the Lamont, as a witness in the Lamont investigation. The timeline between here and approximately 8 p.m. isn't known for certain. What is known is that shortly before that time, a laundress named Mary Ann McKay was walking home from work. It's not clear exactly where, but presumably on Bartlett Street, when she saw a man and a slightly built young girl engaged in a somewhat heated conversation. She said that the man, who she later identified as Theo Durant, seemed to be pleading with a girl about something and she seemed to be refusing whatever it was that he was asking. At around 8.15, or so he judged, a man named J.P. Hodgkins set out from his home at 109 Bartlett Street in a northerly direction. About 325 feet from the church, so he judged, he saw a man and a woman. When I first saw them, he said, it seemed that the young man was trying to take some liberties with the girl. As I approached, they became quiet. Hodgkins said his suspicions were such that he was about to take some action, but when he looked back toward the couple, the woman had taken the man's arm, and it appeared they had made up. He went to the store he was heading to, and on his return trip back to his home, the couple was no longer there. He said he was certain that the young man he had seen was Theo Durant. Given the descriptions of what was going on, this may have been the same incident Marianne McKay witnessed. A teenage boy named Albert McElroy also saw the young couple near the church, and he said that later, when accompanied by a friend named Bert Minner, he saw a light on inside the church. At some point in the few minutes between J.P. Hodgkin's two trips past the church, Charles Hills said he saw a man and a woman enter the church. Another witness named Alexander Zenger went one further. He was a member of Emmanuel Baptist, and clearly identified the two as Theo Durant and Minnie Williams, since they turned to face him as he passed, and when he saw them, they were standing underneath the streetlight. He distinctly saw them enter the church, and further said that he saw Theo Durant leave the church later, alone. Durant arrived at the meeting held at Dr. Vogel's home at about 9.30, looking a bit worse for wear. His hair was somewhat disheveled, perspiration stood out on his forehead, and his hands were slightly dirty enough so that he asked permission of Dr. Vogel to wash them. He left around 11.30 in the company of Elmer Wolf, Miriam Lord, the same woman who was to find Minnie's body the next day, and a few other people. The group walked to 24th and Cap Streets, and Durant left the others. Elmer Wolf said later on that night, he passed by Emmanuel Baptist again and saw Theo Durant standing near the building. In the search of the building following the discovery of Minnie's body, police uncovered a bloody shoe in Reverend John Gibson's study, but it appears not too much emphasis was placed on this clue. The defense, of course, was during the trial to try to make Reverend Gibson the murderer, but police felt that it had probably become bloody when Gibson viewed the body that morning. But given the defense strategy, and the fact that the attempt to frame Reverend Gibson was apparently Durant's idea, I could also wonder whether the shoe had been deliberately bloodied by either, he, by either he or someone else. These were the days when there was virtually no real crime scene security, remember, to lay the groundwork for these eventual allegations. In talking with the Morgans, with whom many had been staying in Alameda, police discovered some interesting information on the relationship between the two. It seems that Minnie was quite smitten with Theo early on, but at some point she seems to have soured on him, and actively tried to avoid him. Mr. Morgan thought this might have been due to Theo's having made a quote-unquote improper proposal to her. 
This would certainly seem to be par for the course for Durant, as Lillian Turner, referred to earlier, also avoided them on similar grounds. Talks with other girls at the church revealed that when Blanche Lamont disappeared, Minnie Williams developed suspicions that she had not only met with foul play, but that it was Theo Durant who was the one responsible. She seems never to have told anyone exactly what led her to believe this, whether it was just a suspicion based on her dislike of the man, or whether she had some sort of damning information available to her. Mr. Morgan also said that on one occasion shortly before her death, Theo Durant showed up at the house in Alameda and asked Minnie to come over to San Francisco as he had something important to tell her. She rebuffed him and told him to either come out and say it or wait and tell her at Dr. Vogel's. But she was not to ever make it to Dr. Vogel's. The exact motives for the two murders have never really been definitively determined, but you can certainly theorize about what they might have been based on things that are known or at least suspected. Theo mentioned that he was going to loan Blanche a book he had been reading. It seems that he might have told her that he had it at the church and lured her back there. He did, in fact, deliver the book to her aunts the next day. Whether this murder was premeditated or not can't be determined, but I'm going to guess it wasn't. Based on the fact that he might have at least believed them to be engaged, and his seeming reputation, I think it seems fairly likely that he probably tried something, she rebuffed him, and then he raped and murdered her. It's hard to say how, but I don't particularly feel this was premeditated. As for Minnie, I think it should be fairly obvious. She had her suspicions about what happened to Blanche, suspicions that were pretty accurate, as it turns out, and the police believed she was murdered by him to shut her up before she told someone who could make his life really inconvenient. On May 29, 1895, Theo Durant was formally arraigned for the murders of Blanche Lamont and Minnie Williams. The trial itself set to begin on July 22nd. Judge D.J. Murphy presided over the case, with District Attorney William Barnes and Assistant District Attorney Edgar Pixado as prosecutors. Theo Durant was defended by John Dickinson and Eugene Dupre. Due to the notoriety of the case in not only San Francisco, but most of the surrounding area, the selection of jurors took quite a while. Following suit, the trial itself was a long affair. Rather than recounting all the details, which would take an entire book practically, as I've already gone into most of what was testified to by various people, I'll recount only those things that were a surprise. A popular subject in the newspapers was an implication that Theo Durant may have also murdered Eugene Ware. Ware worked at a drugstore on the ground floor of the St. Nicholas Hotel, a few blocks south of the school that Blanche Lamont attended. He was found around 1 a.m. on the morning of December 14, 1894, stabbed 19 times. His murder went unsolved, and though it was suspected that a man named William Flugel, who had disappeared, may have been responsible, after the Lamont and Williams murders became known, attempts were made several times to link Durant to the crime. It was said that he was seen in the drugstore speaking with Ware on several occasions. It was also stated that a young woman resembling Maud Durant, the future Maud Allen, frequented the shop. But as she was at school in Berlin at the time, that couldn't have been the case. A stronger case was made for the fact that Eugene Ware was acquainted with Minnie Williams and was possibly seeing her romantically. It was said by some that perhaps Durant had murdered Ware in a fit of jealousy. There were some interesting happenings in the lead, into, lead up to the trial. During one of the preliminary hearings, back on April 23rd, a woman named Lucy Laura Gold Williamson disrupted the proceedings when she stood up and announced that, I am here in judgment for God, and I pronounce Theodore Durant innocent. I have tried him and found him not guilty. No man in this city and county of San Francisco is worthy to sit in judgment during the trial of Theodore Durant. Therefore, I declare with the authority of God that these law proceedings must be brought to a close with the reading of this letter. No attempt must again be made by any person to arrest Theodore Durant or to again hold him guilty of murder. The woman was swiftly escorted from the courtroom. As with almost any murder case of reasonable notoriety, there were also false confessions. One was a man named John Rosenberg, 
at the time incarcerated in San Quentin, who claimed that Theo Durant had paid him $700 to kill Blanche Lamont. Another, more fanciful tale, was that spun by W.F. Barrett of Santa Cruz, who came forward just before Durant's trial to say that he had killed both Lamont and Williams. His claims were a bizarre patchwork of different things gleaned from the newspapers. He claimed that he saw Durant, Lamont, and Williams on a streetcar, and that he boarded the car with them. Durant and Blanche entered the church while Minnie waited outside. Barrett entered the church. Once inside, Durant rushed to the belfry to fix a gas line. And it was while there that Barrett attempted to rape Lamont, and then, he said, murdered Minnie to stop her screaming. Then, while Durant lay overcome by fumes from the gas vent, he dragged the bodies into the belfry and left the church. Obviously, there's several things wrong with his story, not least of which is the fact that Blanche and Minnie were murdered a week and a half apart, not at the same time. Of course, Minnie's body hadn't been found in the belfry either. And besides, if he killed Blanche Lamont in the belfry, how would Minnie Williams, who was by his own story outside, start screaming about the murder anyway? In the end, it was concluded that W.F. Barrett was insane. A woman who signed herself One Who Knows wrote to San Francisco Mayor Adolph Sutro saying that Theo Durant and the company of two other men murdered Blanche Lamont in Golden Gate Park and that Minnie Williams had been murdered by a fourth unknown person. During his cross-examination of Martin Quinlan in September, Dupre attempted to ask him whether he had ever been convicted of a felony in San Francisco. Objections were raised by the prosecution, with Judge Murphy eventually ruling against that line of questioning as being completely irrelevant to the case at hand. Martin Quinlan had, in fact, been convicted of betrayal in 1891 when he impregnated a woman named Clara Luster, promising to leave his wife for her and then refuse to marry her. She had attempted to shoot Quinlan. During the trial, he was cited again for beating a man named Albert Hoffman, who was testifying on behalf of Luster. Much time was given to an attendance book from a lecture held at Cooper Medical College on the afternoon of April 3rd. In this book, Durant was listed as having been present at a lecture given from 3.30 onward by Dr. William Fitzcheney. The defense was obviously attempting to prove that Durant was at school and therefore couldn't have killed Blanche Lamont at the church. However, a classmate of Durant's by the name of Dorr said that he didn't recall seeing Durant in class that day. Cross-examination of another witness revealed that students were often marked as present who actually weren't, so in the end, the entire question of the attendance book was disregarded, since it was determined that even though Durant was marked as present, he may or may not have actually been. On October 4th, H.J. McCoy, chairman of the Young Men's Christian Association, or YMCA, accosted L.J. Truman and Nathan Crocker, two of the jurors, on a streetcar and told them that if they did not hang Durant, the people would hang the jurors. McCoy then appeared before Judge Murphy during the Durant trial and admitted that, I believe I used the words attributed to me, but I did not mean anything by them. I had not the slightest idea of influencing Mr. Truman. McCoy was charged with contempt and fined. Finally, Theo Durant himself was called. He offered relatively little in the way of useful information, though he was examined closely about his consumption of bromoseltzer on the afternoon of April 3rd. That medicine was known to not help all that much with a sort of headache caused by gas inhalation, such as he had said that he had. In fact, it was often quite dangerous in these situations. It was made out that Durant, as a medical student, should have known this. In fact, the medicine was actually poisonous, containing a substance known as acetanilid. As Samuel Adams wrote in The Great American Fraud, the full dose is a heaping teaspoonful. A heaping teaspoonful of bromoseltzer means about 10 grains of acetanilid. Five grains have been known to produce fatal results. The prescribed dose of bromoseltzer is dangerous and has been known to produce sudden collapse. They also questioned several medical experts who all came to the conclusion that anyone exposed to as much gas as Durant had claimed to George King that he was would likely be rendered completely unconscious and not merely a bit green-looking. 
Theo had also become quite aggravated and heated over his meeting with a classmate named Gilbert Graham, connected with the defense that he had actually been at Dr. Fitzcheney's lecture on April 3rd. He met with Graham while in prison and asked for a copy of the notes to the lecture. When questioned about it, Graham said that, He asked me at first if I had any objection to lending him my notes in order that he might compare them with them, those that he had. In further conversation, he admitted that he had no notes of the lecture, and he said that if he could get the notes, or my notes, that he could prove his alibi. He used the term alibi on the 20th of April. The last was meant as a direct response to Durant, who had earlier reported the story of needing them for comparison, and who claimed that until his trial began, he had no knowledge of the meaning of the term alibi. In one line of questioning, Durant outright lied. There was a rumor that he had mailed in his, his attorneys an envelope with the instructions that the contents were to be read if he was convicted and discarded if he were acquitted. He maintained that he had not, in fact, done this. But about two weeks later, on October 27th, it came to light that this had, in fact, happened. His attorneys, curious about its contents and whether it might contain something they could use to their client's advantage, disregarded the instructions and opened the envelope to read a statement saying that Durant had witnessed Reverend Gibson and a second man murdering Blanche Lamont. Dickinson and Dupre found this too unlikely a story and disregarded it. Evidence provided by Dr. Charles Farnham, a surgeon and anatomy professor at Cooper Medical College, stated that wooden blocks were used to elevate certain areas of corpses to, to allow air to pass underneath the body. This slowed decomposition somewhat. The obvious implication was that in staging Blanche Lamont's body, Durant placed the wooden blocks under it to aid in keeping the body fresh, for lack of a better word. Later questioning made it even more obvious that Dr. Farnham's testimony was meant to directly address the state of Lamont's body, as D.A. Barnes turned the questioning toward the placing of wooden blocks on either side of the head. Initially, Farnham was puzzled as to why this would be done, although he later concurred that if he had that if done quickly enough after death, this could help ensure that the face remained in view and the head stayed straight after rigor had set in. The defense also questioned the identification by pawnbroker Adolf Oppenheim of Durant as the man who attempted to pawn a ring. They noted that Oppenheim had extremely bad eyesight, and in fact another man, Charles Lenahan, who did resemble Theo Durant, claimed that it was he who attempted to pawn the ring. The ring was of a commonly available type sold in stores as well. And so though Blanche Lamont might have had an identical ring, it couldn't actually be proven that the one Oppenheim saw was hers. Throughout the trial, Durant's attorneys seemed to be very aggressive, attempting to cast doubt on witness testimony, or, well, more properly, the witnesses themselves. They seemed not to try to prove that what those witnesses had seen was wrong, but rather to assassinate the entire character of those witnesses. They seem to have pretty well done this in the cases of Adolf Oppenheim and the lawyer Martin Quinlan, as they paraded out witness after witness to testify to their bad eyesight in the case of Oppenheim and overall bad reputation in the case of Quinlan. To some extent, I suppose that's not to be unexpected for defense attorneys, but they seemed especially vicious in this regard. They also seemed to be aiming to drag the proceedings on for as long as possible as they fixated on seemingly irrelevant lines of questioning, such as where a witness was going after he saw their client. All in all, the complete transcripts of all that transpired in the trial filled 2,700 pages, three large volumes. On November 1st, 1895, the trial concluded, and the jury withdrew for only 20 minutes before they returned and delivered a verdict. They found Theo Durant guilty of first-degree murder in the case of Blanche Lamont. For whatever reason, though Durant had been charged with the murder of Minnie Williams, he was tried only for the Lamont murder, despite the general feeling that a stronger case could be made for his having killed Williams. Probably, the state decided to try him for what it saw as the weaker of the two cases, and had he been acquitted of Lamont's murder, then they would have had a stronger case in reserve for a second trial. He would be formally sentenced on it November 8th. A motion was made for a retrial, but it was denied. But Durant's defense attorneys, as should have been expected, 
managed to drag out the sentencing. On December 6, 1895, just after the motion for a retrial was denied, they appealed the conviction. This trial took even longer and lasted until March 3, 1897. The California Supreme Court eventually denied the appeal and concurred with the San Francisco court's decision. Undaunted, the defense then attempted to appeal the denial of the appeal and were once more denied. Judge George Bars, given charge of the case after the retirement of Judge Murphy, sentenced Theo Durant to be hanged on June 11, 1897. Once more, the defense appealed, this time filing with the United States Supreme Court. A writ of habeas corpus was also filed, with it being alleged that Durant's constitutional rights were violated, and that the state had held him for, t for too long before charging him. The habeas corpus was denied. Then they appealed to the so-famous nowadays Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, then they were denied by that court, and finally, they filed another appeal with the United States Supreme Court. Finally, on November 8, 1897, the U.S. Supreme Court denied both the appeal and the habeas corpus. It was finally decided that Theo Durant would be executed on November 12th. But that wasn't to be, because still the defense persisted. Dickinson attempted to file a second writ of habeas corpus, and meanwhile Dupre filed a probable cause stay of execution. In an odd turn of events, they also attempted to force the trial of Durant for the tr murder of Minnie Williams. This doesn't really seem to make much sense to me as a tactic, unless its end goal was simply to stave off the execution for as long as possible. At any rate, this too was denied on November 30th, 1897. The second execution gate date had gone and passed, and Theo Durant was still alive. On December 15, 1897, Durant was once more given a new, new date of execution. The defense continued to file appeals and petitions, but finally, the rest of the judicial system said enough is enough, denied the outstanding charges, which were the probable cause stay of execution, and yet another writ of habeas corpus, and barred the defense from making any further appeals. They did attempt to circumvent this, however, and appeal directly to the governor, but he shot this down. Around this time, back at Emmanuel Baptist Church, scene of Durant's crimes, there was a commotion when during church service one Sunday, a woman stood up and said that she had had visions that Theo Durant was innocent. She was escorted out of the church and was later identified as Alice Maud Hartley, herself a murderess. She had shot and killed Nevada Senator Murray D. Foley in 1894. Finally, 26-year-old Theo Durant was executed by hanging on the morning of January 7, 1898. True to form, Although they'd been barred from further appeals, his lawyers had been filing yet another writ of habeas corpus, and the court was delivering to them their decision that the writ was, once more, denied, at exactly the same time that Durant was being hung at San Quentin. Just before his death, he converted to Catholicism. He delivered a speech on the gallows, saying, I have no animosity toward any, except those who have hounded and persecuted me to my death, for a crime that never stained my hands. Such was the reputation of Theo Durant, and the notoriety of the case, that no cemeteries in the city of San Francisco would consent to bury him, and no crematories to burn the remains either. Not only there, but most of the cemeteries and crematories in that area of California followed suit. Finally, Durant's parents found one that would take him, and a week after his death he was cremated in Pasadena. The ashes were given to his parents. There is no record of whatever might have happened to him after that. Blanche Lamont, either 21 or 22, is buried in a family plot in their longtime home of Dillon, Montana. 21-year-old Minnie Williams was originally buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery in San Francisco, but that cemetery was later closed, and Williams, as well as nearly 35,000 others, were unceremoniously reburied in a mass grave in the Cypress Lawn Cemetery in San Mateo County. When I initially heard of this case, it was that Reverend John Gibson had murdered Lamont and Williams, and not Theo Durant. This seems to have been a popular opinion at the time, and indeed there seems to be a movement among many researchers to try to make it out that Theo was innocent of the killings. But though all the evidence they had was circumstantial to some extent, 
All they really had in 1895, if you think about it, was circumstantial evidence. Researching the case, the conclusion seems pretty inescapable to me that, despite the protectiveness of his parents and of his sister when she heard of the crime, the vehemence of his attorneys and his own protestations of innocence, that Theo Durant was indeed guilty. Reverend Gibson has since been accused of an even more notorious crime. In the 1999 book The Bell Tower, Robert Graysmith concludes that Gibson, who resigned from his parish in Scotland in 1887 and came to San Francisco in December of 1888, was not only guilty of the Emmanuel Baptist killings, but was the notorious Jack the Ripper as well. I'm not really even going to dignify this with a response, as the book is just as much fiction as fact. Pretty much the entire hypothesis, also, is based on a supposed resemblance of Reverend Gibson to one of the witness descriptions of Jack, which resembles approximately 99% of men in the Victorian era, from what I've seen. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. Photos associated with the episode will... As always, be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.